Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or at filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Watch with Jen, the solo film recommendation pod. I hope you've been enjoying the sister podcast, Watch with Jen and Friends, which has kind of dominated the release schedule as of late, and I'm loving it. It's been really wonderful to have such intriguing conversations with people I admire, and I just wanted to get to know a little better, and the reception has has been very good and I hope that you're liking it as well. Do check out the newest episodes with Julia Ricci and Robert Daniels. And coming up we have some terrific guests. I can give you a sneak preview. You will soon hear blogger and freelance writer Raquel Stetcher. The first critic I remember reading religiously growing up, Chris Hewitt, who used to be of the St. Paul Pioneer Press and is now writing film reviews for the Star Tribune of Minneapolis. And also, Brian Tallarico, the editor of RogerEbert.com. And while I will always post episode links on at Film Intuition, on Twitter, on Instagram, etc., you can also now follow at WatchWithJen on Twitter, which is an account exclusively for the podcast. Additionally, of course, you can subscribe wherever you usually tune in, including Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and Apple, where you can also, of course, leave a review if you are so inclined. But without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and jump into this week's five films for you. Starting off, I would love to talk about one of my favorite movies of all time, You Can Count on Me, which came out in 2000. It is now available on Hulu, Showtime, and Canopy. And of course, you can always rent the film as well. It was written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan. He is a playwright of extreme merit, and this was his directorial debut. The film stars Laura Linney, Mark Ruffalo, Rory Culkin, Matthew Broderick, J. Smith Cameron, a.k.a. Jerry on Succession, who is actually Kenneth Lonergan's wife, and Gabby Hoffman and Amy Ryan. So it's a very dynamic cast of who's who before they were huge stars. It received two Oscar nominations for Laura Linney and Best Original Screenplay. The film appeals to me mainly because it is a brother-sister story. I grew up extremely close to my older brother. He was my idol. I wanted to follow him around, do everything he did, and he was a great, he still is of course, a great big brother. But even then he would let me tag along with him and his friends. And they kind of became my movie crew, so I felt like I had a bunch of honorary big brothers as well. So I've always enjoyed movies about a brother-sister dynamic, and it's rare to find one done this well with this much maturity and realism that deals with a brother-sister relationship as grown-ups when life does take you in different directions. 
So this film appealed to me on that level. And also just because it is an incredible piece of work. It is so compelling. And the acting, oh my goodness. I remember thinking that I was seeing like the next James Dean or Edward Norton when I first saw Mark Ruffalo. I will never forget being in the theater to see this. And it was crowded. I mean, there was nary a seat to be found. And there were these two women behind me that must have just bought tickets so they could just sit and talk for the whole movie. Shortly into this thing, I had had enough. I did the turnaround and look at them. Of course, you can't do this nowadays because who knows who's carrying a gun, of course. And, you know, I did that a few times. They would just sort of quiet for maybe like 30 seconds and then start up talking about shopping and like stupid shit. And I just wanted to watch the movie. So finally, I just left whoever I was seated with. I'm like, I need to go and just went to a different seat that I I found because they were not quite as annoyed as I was with the talking. I was a little obsessive and it was a relative I was with. So they were like totally used to Jen's a little bit obsessed with movies, whatever. And they were able to concentrate. No, me, I just wanted to be like one with the film. So completely got up, went, you know, halfway across the auditorium, found another seat and just stayed there and cried and laughed. And yeah, this is definitely one of my favorite movies. It centers on Sammy, played by Laura Linney. She's a single mother living in a small Catskills mountain town that's in southeast New York. And it focuses on her complicated relationship with her sort of drifter younger brother, Terry, who always kind of floats in and out of trouble. It also deals with her work relationship with her new taskmaster boss, played by Matthew Broderick, and the local residents as well. Terry and Sammy, and Terry is Mark Ruffalo, lost their parents as kids in a car accident. And Terry has never quite managed to adjust, I think, Sammy Laura Linney, being the older sister, kind of took it upon herself to fill in for mom and dad and be the responsible one, especially since as the film begins, she is a single mother of Rory Culkin, her son. And Terry, meanwhile, has a younger girlfriend. They need money. And he decides he's going to go visit his sister to see if she'll give him some money. She, meanwhile, is just so excited to see her brother and gets completely wrapped up in preparations for his visit, starts baking. So there's this sequence that takes place when the two meet at a restaurant and each one wants a different thing out of the exchange. She's looking for a connection with the brother she misses so dearly. And he is just awkward and feeling uncomfortable because... He's basically there for a transactional reason, and it is heartbreaking. It's beautiful, and it doesn't pull any punches. However, certain events arise, and Terry decides that it might be a good thing to actually stay in the small town with his sister for a little while, and forms a better connection with her as they try to navigate life. 
And it is just a moving, stunning, almost a chamber drama, I would say. But there's some comedy thrown in. I actually showed this movie. I curated it and I hosted a screening of it for an audience, a film discussion series that I hosted. And it went over so well. I tended to choose a lot of films to introduce the viewers to a new talent, be that a filmmaker I was especially fond of, like Mir Nair, Julie Taymor, or whoever the filmmaker was at the time that I chose, or an actor that I really wanted them to get to know, like Ben Foster or Sam Rockwell, or in this case, Mark Ruffalo. It was super popular with critics, The film won Best Picture and Screenplay at the Sundance Film Festival, so that jury definitely knew what they were doing. And it has picked up momentum over the years, word of mouth. So this one is probably going to be a little bit familiar to some of you, and some of you may know it and love it, but I couldn't not recommend You Can Count On Me. I think right now we're all kind of getting in touch with family a bit more or checking in because we're all stuck at home. I've talked to friends who are stuck with their children and they're finding though that their kids are forming much tighter knit relationships than they have in the past because of this pandemic. So there's an upside here. And that reminded me that it is probably the best time to recommend the story of Sammy and her brother Terry in You Can Count On Me. Our next film is a Hitchcockian thriller, 1987's The Bedroom Window, which you can find right now on Canopy. It was written and directed by Curtis Hansen, who is a favorite filmmaker of mine. I've talked about Curtis Hansen and some of his movies in the past. It was a film based on a novel by Anne Holden called The Witnesses. Paramount had actually had the rights to this book for 15 years. And Hansen was extremely excited and wanted to persuade them to let him work on it. The film was produced by Robert Town, as in the legendary Robert Town from the screenplays for Chinatown and The Man Wrote Shampoo. I mean, he's a legend. It stars Steve Gutenberg. Yes, Steve Gutenberg in a neo-noir. I mean, and he kills. He is really good in this film. I think it actually benefits from his comedic energy, honestly. And yeah, he's great. It also co-stars the always lovely Elizabeth McGovern and Isabelle Huppert. It was shot in Baltimore. And interestingly enough, back to Steve Gutenberg, Curtis Hansen was not sure about casting a comic actor in this role, this serious role. And it was a suggestion by Dino De Laurentiis, I believe. And he went out to dinner with Gutenberg and basically Steve talked him into letting him do the film. He was a big star at the time, but he convinced Hansen that he was very serious about the part. He loved that it was a change of pace for him, and he would do whatever Curtis Hansen wanted for the film to make it work. And like I said, I think he's wonderful in the film. It is about a young executive, that's Gutenberg, who starts an affair with the seductive wife of his boss, 
Isabel Huppert, of course. Who else? And after they have a tryst in his apartment, she witnesses an attempted assault. A man is accosting a young woman down on the sidewalk below outside the apartment. And when she runs to the window naked after hearing this young woman scream, the man looks up at her and is like shocked and runs away. They decide they need to call the cops. But in order to protect her, because what was she doing in this single man's apartment after midnight when she's married to the big cheese, they decide to hide the fact that she was there. So he pretends that he was the eyewitness to begin with, which soon makes him suspicious in the eyes of the police. And things get a little bit more complicated when he befriends the victim and the real culprit begins to track him down. So there's a whole lot of thriller elements at play here. The film contains what I think is one of the most suspenseful courtroom sequences ever. Like, I mean, there's a few good men. Everybody knows that sequence. But the one in the bedroom window is just edge of your seat material. It is very good. The third act, I will fully admit, goes a little overboard as he starts teaming up with one of the characters and, you know, tries to get to the bottom of everything himself. It's an ode, of course, to Rear Window. And to Hansen's credit, he actually did build up the victim character in Anne Holden's book. I guess she was kind of one note or she didn't really exist. I don't know. I have not read the novel, so I'm just going off the research that I did. And I think in wanting to make sure that her story is told, it does go a little far with some third act twists that just don't really seem to be rooted in reality. But it's still just a great time, especially for me and fellow thriller lovers. So I totally recommend that you check out The Bedroom Window. There was a question going around recently on Twitter for the best film that you've watched in quarantine. And I thought about it, and even though this might be technically cheating because it was a few weeks before some of the states decided to do mandatory lockdowns, but we had watched the news enough that like people in my circle were already just staying the hell home, including yours truly. And one of the movies that I watched like at the beginning of this, oh my God, I don't want to go anywhere period was Stop Making Sense. Actually, to even make the film more of a balm, it was what I watched when Elizabeth Warren suspended her campaign. And of course, I was a big Warren fan. But anyway, back to the movie. I had, of course, seen like clips of Stop Making Sense as an 80s kid for years But I'd never sat down and watched the entire movie before because I didn't have access to it. And suddenly, there it was on the Criterion channel. It's also on Prime and Voodoo. I do caution you, even though Voodoo is free, of course, there are ads. And this movie, because it is a concert film, plays so much better without ads. It kind of kills the vibe. The 1984 movie is leaving the Criterion channel at the end of the month, so if you want to watch it there, step on it. 
It was directed by the great Jonathan Demme. The whole thrust of the film is a live performance by the incredible band Talking Heads. It was shot over the course of four nights at Hollywood's Pantages Theater in December of 83, as the group was touring while promoting their album, Speaking in Tongues. The band actually raised the $1.2 million needed for the budget themselves. And this film is historic. It was the first picture made entirely using digital audio techniques, including a 24 digital track recording, which is why it sounds just so amazing and so damn clear. It's known as one of the greatest rock movies ever made, according to Leonard Maltin. Pauline Kael dubbed the film Close to Perfection, and Roger Ebert gave it three and a half out of four stars. And I love what he wrote about it, so I'm just going to read it to you. The overwhelming impression throughout Stop Making Sense is of an enormous energy of life being lived at a joyous high. It's a live show with elements of Metropolis, but the film's peak moments come through David Byrne's simple physical presence. He jogs in place with the sidemen. He runs around the stage. He seems so happy to be alive and making music. He serves as a reminder of how sour and weary and strung out many rock bands have become. Now, I would uh, disagree with him there about weary and strung out because there was some really fun music still being made in the 80s at the time. But I love what he's talking about because this film is a jubilant celebration of music, creativity, companionship, and just, yeah, being alive and singing and dancing in unison. It begins with a stripped down performance of Psycho Killer from David Byrne, the front man. And each song that follows brings on more band members and the performances get a little more intricate and involved until finally the entire band is on stage for burning down the house and they bring down the house. All the big hits or the early big hits are played in this. You're going to hear like life during wartime, girlfriend is better, take me to the river, once in a lifetime. I mean, it is just incredible. It was the most fun I think I've had with a new film this entire pandemic period. And at the end of the year, when people are like, oh, what's your favorite first watch for the year? So far, that is Stop Making Sense. And I don't really see it changing. This was a blast. And I wish I would have seen the entire thing sooner instead of just like music video clips. So I urge you, even if you have seen this movie like before or in the past, give it a look because the print that they use on the Criterion channel was gorgeous. I thought it was so clear, so vivid, and the sound is amazing. As I mentioned before, I did not even know about this digital audio technique and I could tell that it was just a stunner of an audio mix. One of the best things that I did, and I didn't even know about the pandemic 
coming up was back in January, I upgraded my sound system in the main room of my house. So I installed a 5.1 surround sound and all the different speakers. I have an old 5.1 in my bedroom. And of course, because I share a wall, I can't really, you know, just blast it very much. So I love now going in the family room with the newer tech and letting it rip. And so Stop Making Sense was a great test run. I mean, I'd had the sound system since January. I'd heard plenty of good stuff, but this was the high point. So prepare to have burn and company just burn down your house with burning down the house and all the songs of Stop Making Sense. There's something about, even though, of course, he's made fun of, and rightfully so, for some of his little peccadillos that we see in his various shows over the years, but there is something just unmistakable and brilliant about a screenplay that's been written, at least in part, by Aaron Sorkin. And Moneyball, which was written by Sorkin and Steven Zalian, based on Michael Lewis's 2003 nonfiction book, is no exception. It is, I think, a perfect film, actually. It was directed by Bennett Miller, the filmmaker who's been actually nominated for Best Director twice. He helmed Capote in 2005, which I still remember, was it Jack Nicholson who pronounced it Capote? at the Oscars just cracks me up. So now whenever I see Capote in conjunction with the film, I just hear Capote. But anyway, Bennett Miller also made Foxcatcher in 2014. So he has a thing for true stories. He actually started out as a documentary filmmaker with the crews in the late 90s. And Moneyball is just like Capote and Foxcatcher. Yeah, a docudrama. It was from 2011. The film itself you can find right now on Hulu and Stars. It was almost made as actually pretty close to a documentary by Steven Soderbergh. Steven even wrote a draft, this was prior to Zalian and Sorkin, that at first Sony was happy with, and then eventually Sony and Soderbergh had some creative differences, and so he bowed out, and that brought on Bennett Miller and Sorkin and Steven Zalian. So both of these screenwriters are incredible. Like, who wouldn't want to work with either one? And more than that, like more than the people behind the scenes, the cast in this movie is just simply staggering. Brad Pitt, of course, is the star. Jonah Hill, there's Philip Seymour Hoffman, Robin Wright, Chris Pratt. I always enjoy the fact that there is a small uncredited cameo by Spike Jones, as in filmmaker Spike Jones of her and being John Milkovich in those terrific fat boy slim videos that he directed. So look for that. The film chronicles the Oakland Athletics baseball team's 2002 season and general manager Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, his attempts to assemble a competitive team by using what is called a sabermetric or statistics-based approach that was pioneered by Jonah Hill's Peter Brand which finds value in unappreciated players. 
Not the big name guys, but guys who get on the base, the hard workers, which fits in with Bean's lack of a big budget, even though his approach to this alienates the coach of the athletics, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, and some of the other people in the organization. They're not sure what to make of Bean's decision to trust the math. And it's like how to make math exciting. Well, this movie manages that and does it so very well. The film receives six Oscar nominations for Best Picture, Best Actor, Brad Pitt, Best Supporting Actor, Jonah Hill, Best Adapted Screenplay, Sound Mixing, and Editing. It's a movie that, oddly enough, I remember watching like repeatedly when I first got sick around, this would have been around that time, like 2011, 2012, when I was first hit by this immune system thing that kind of hit when I turned about 30. And, you know, you get in the hospital and they have like XYZ movies. They don't have many to choose from. And Moneyball was available. I remember I kind of cycled through like three movies again and again and again. I watched Moneyball. I watched Jeff who lives at home and Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol like over and over and over again. Jeff who lives at home was actually one of the films I recommended in this podcast like many many moons ago. One of the early episodes. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol is still my favorite Mission Impossible movie. I love all the movies. Yes, I even find MI2 to be entertaining. No, it isn't perfect. But damn it, it's John Woo. It is a weird play on Notorious. Like, what's not to enjoy? So back to Moneyball, though. Sorry for that little segue into Mission Impossible. Um, I think this is a big crowd pleaser. And I think the fact that it does rely on math and It is, at its heart, just the ultimate underdog story because you have Bean like trying to rebound from a horrible season by doing something different and going this far out of the main line of thinking for baseball that that he's an ultimate underdog. Peter Brand, of course, really is. He's just a guy that works in an office. Can't remember which team Billy like hires him from. And, of course, all these players whose lives he changes by deciding you are valuable, you get on the base, are also underdogs. So this does fit that sort of motley crew of people who are talented and willing to risk it all on some loopy idea or some ideology that kind of fits in with the Sorkin thing. They are idealists. We saw that again and again in the newsroom, which, I mean, people make fun of, and deservedly so, a little bit. But, God, I really enjoyed that show, so maybe I am a sap. But anyway, I think Moneyball is one that you could put on for any type of film fan, and they're going to find something to respond to in it. So check it out. Again, it's on Hulu and Stars. Much like you can count on me, the last movie that I wanted to recommend today is another one of my all-time favorites. It's actually one of the first DVDs that I remember buying. 
the film is Zero Effect, and it's from 1998. Unfortunately, this isn't playing on any of the major streaming services, but it's available for rent at all the big retailers. And it's as low as like $1.99, I believe, right now on Apple and Google. The film that was written and directed by Jake Kazdan, yes, as in Lawrence Kazdan's son, Jake, his son Jonathan is also in the film business, is a mystery. It's a comedy. There's a little romance. There's some noir aspects. It's a throwback, though, more to classic noir, because rather than follow like a criminal, a con man, a hitman, or drifter, as we did so often in the 1990s, we get a private detective here, one that's actually dubbed the world's most private detective, which is Daryl Zero played by Bill Pullman. He blends in so well with a crowd. Sometimes he uses fake beards or parting his hair on one side or the other, and the man has like a million different IDs that you might not even know you've met him twice, which is proven in the film. His assistant, Steve Arlo, played by Ben Stiller, is his researcher, the face of the business, And he meets the clients for Daryl Zero, who, when he isn't on the job, is a complete basket case and a big mess. Like, when we first see him, he's strung out on amphetamines and eating tuna out of a can, drinking tab. Like, the guy is a mess. He's also incredibly paranoid. There's like, I don't know, 11 locks on his door, that kind of thing. And so he's completely socially inept when he isn't on the job. But when he gets an assignment or something intrigues him enough to actually leave that apartment of his, stop writing his memoirs, which are kind of sprinkled in throughout the film as Bill Pullman's Daryl Zero narrates, then he is a cool customer and able to handle his business. Again, like drifting in and out of crowd using one name, meeting you again later, and dropping another name, and you are none the wiser. The plot itself is loosely based on Arthur Conan Doyle's short story, A Scandal in Bohemia. In the film, Ryan O'Neill plays a businessman in Portland who has lost his keys, and it seems that someone now has access to something incriminating. He is being blackmailed. And he doesn't know exactly by whom. So Daryl Zero, after Steve Arlo goes and does the whole song and dance, meeting the client, kind of feeling him out, goes to Portland. And it's hilarious because Zero is so needy that he has, like, Steve drive him to the airport and then fly tomorrow so you can update me on something. And then fly back to LA to check on something fly back to Portland the same day, like back and forth, back and forth. And it is taking its toll on Steve's relationship with his girlfriend played by Angela Featherstone. 
and she is not loving this mysterious assignment that he does, this employment that he can't talk to her about. I'm guessing an NDA was probably used back then, and she thinks it's probably something weird he's doing. He assures her it's nothing weird, even though, I mean, let's face it, it's very weird. But anyway, this shtick of Arlo being used like a yo-yo back and forth is pretty damn funny. But it isn't Stiller's movie at all. He is a supporting player in this one. It is really Bill Pullman's. And it's so good to see him do something just so strange and enjoyable like this. I mean, he's usually being dumped by women uh, throughout the 90s. He doesn't have luck with women, except for, of course, while you were sleeping. And the film was actually written for Pullman by Jake Kazdan, who remembered meeting him and being impressed by him on the set of The Accidental Tourist when he visited his dad's set. Accidental Tourist, of course, is another film that I love, and I recommended several episodes ago as well. So these all kind of fit together. You see where I'm going with this. Anyway, while Daryl Zero is in Portland, he falls for a beautiful paramedic played by Kim Dickens, who might have a few secrets of her own as well. So just like the classic noir mysteries, sometimes multiple mysteries occur simultaneously. Usually they're somehow overlapping. This one pays off on that in a very interesting way, and I love it. It also gives Kim Dickens just a great spotlight for her talent. She is a very good actress, and one who I think should have had a greater career. I'm warning you, this movie is all kinds of trigger warning for rape and assault, but if you can handle it, I do encourage you to seek out Alison Anders' Things Behind the Sun, which Kim Dickens is in and gives her strongest, most powerful, most heartbreaking performance that I've ever seen. Don Cheadle stars in it with her. It is just amazing and devastating and everything in between. So if you can take it, and I will warn you, like, it's going to mess you up for a good day or two, that movie, because it does not pull any punches, and it shouldn't. It actually was an extremely personal film for Alison Anders to make. Uh, about her own assaults, and it's just, I think, one of her masterpieces. So be sure to check that out after you become taken in by Kim Dickens in Zero Effect. This film is one that I talk about way too often on Twitter. I'm always getting asked, like, when are you going to do a whole podcast episode on this? Or are you ever going to do a tweet along of Zero Effect? Are you ever going to write about it? And it's one I love so much that I know I should. Raging Bull is another film that I get asked all the time, like, why haven't you written about Raging Bull or The Limey or After Hours or these grand films that I have such a strong connection to, either personally or I just think they're wonderful films that everybody should see. And sometimes it's a little intimidating because I respect them so much. I would only want to write about them if I could be sure that I'm going to do them justice. And, you know, all writers are a little bit insecure. I mean, it's one of those things where writers, I don't trust a writer who loves writing. So 
yes, I want to write about these, but you know, I've got to be in the right frame of mind and I need to like completely clear my to-do list and take some time to like really immerse myself in the world of these movies and then go to town on it. Zero Effect is definitely one that I have thought about the need to really take on and do something with. So stay tuned. The reason I decided to introduce it this week and recommend it is because one new thing I'm doing in pandemic this summer is I joined a film club with a few friends. We sort of started one once a week. We watch a movie and last week I chose Zero Effect for my selection and was really excited to watch it again. So I wanted to be sure to spread the joy to you as well. The film has a really great soundtrack. You're going to hear Elvis Costello and one of the best Nick Cave needle drops like of all time. I do have to tell you that. It was screened in Un Certain Regard at Cannes. It's one of those where you watch it and you think, I cannot believe that Jake Kasdan wrote this movie when he was 23 years old. Okay, I don't know when he wrote it, could have been even younger, but he made the film at 23. Yes, of course, with his father, he had a leg up as far as getting the film made. I am talking about the quality of the work, the intricacies of the screenplay, and yeah, it is a work of genius and one that kind of makes me a little bit like, why are you making Jumanji movies today? Like, why aren't you writing another one of these? Maybe not Zero Effect Part 2, even though this could have launched an entire franchise. They did actually make a TV adaptation. You can see the pilot on YouTube. I do have to warn you, as much as I love Alan Cumming, he is not right for the Daryl Zero character, and the pilot is pretty hard to watch. So I would kind of skip it, honestly, unless you're like morbidly curious. It was not good. But my point, yes, and I do have one, all this meandering aside, is that I would love to see Jay Kazdan do this kind of work again. He's entitled to do whatever he wants, of course. And he has children, and I'm sure they love those Jumanji movies, and that's great. But I would love to see more Zero Effect, more the TV set, which is also good. It starred David Duchovny. Very underseen film that I'd also recommend. And Walk Hard, because he was responsible for that as well. That film has become a cult favorite over the years. So a little bit of a tour into Jake Hasdan's filmography there. But the bottom line is, see his debut, check out Zero Effect. So just to recap, today I recommended You Can Count On Me, which you can find on Showtime, Hulu, and Canopy, The Bedroom Window, is available on Canopy. Stop Making Sense is available till the end of the month on Criterion. It's also available on Prime and Vudu for free, but there will be ads on Vudu. Moneyball is now playing on Hulu and Stars, And you can find Zero Effect for rent at any of the major retailers. So I do want to thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed my rambling and film recommendations today. And I will see you next time on Watch With Jen. You have a great rest of your week and take care, everybody. 
I am Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.